Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If one of uh, the ushers would please grab me a bottle of water, that would be super helpful. John chapter 7, verses 10 through 24 this morning. Uh, I've entitled this, Who is this Jesus? And that may seem like an odd title to you as you consider the fact that if we are here gathered together this morning, certainly we know who Jesus is. But you have to remember, in the midst of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, there is this question about who he is. And um, uh, it is not a surprise for us to continue to see this question come up as we walk through the Gospel of John uh, together. And we have seen most recently in this gospel, Jesus being confronted by his brothers about that very idea of who he is and um, the the idea of, um, hey, if you are someone so great and fantastic and, and you can do all these wonderful works, why aren't you making yourself more known? And so they challenge him to go up to the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and uh, to, uh, to to reveal himself. Though, of course, he already has, in many ways, revealed himself. And so he reminds them, though, that they are not like him. The world does not hate them. In fact, they are a part of the world. But the, the world does hate him because he is the one who continues to reveal to the world their sin. And so we, this morning, are confronted with something that is... Um, sort of indicative of our age, and, and we'll see indicative of the age in which Jesus walked the earth, and ever since then, uh, which is asking this question, who is Jesus? And, and, and we have already stated many times in our study here that, uh, that the, world, uh, the world outside of biblical Christianity has a lot to say about who they think Jesus is, and, and they begin to create sort of this Jesus of their own liking or a God of their own liking. And, and we're going to come face to face with that this morning in our text. And so um, if you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read aloud and as you follow along. John chapter 7, starting in chapter uh, verse 10, and read all the way down to verse 24. And so um, I'm reading from the ESV as you follow along this morning. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone, anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances. 
but judge with right judgment. That is the word of God. You may be seated. I hope that it's been a blessing to you as you heard it read in both the Old Testament and New Testament readings this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we are reminded that we believe that your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit in the original autographs. And as such, we can trust it. And so this morning, by your very spirit who inspired these words, would you now open our eyes, fill our hearts. For those of us who are in you, Lord, would you help us to apply these truths Help us to humble ourselves and see the ways in which you are working in our lives through your spirit, through your word, that we might follow you faithfully, Lord, not to earn favor with you, but because we have been transformed by you and are able to pursue righteousness and say no to sin. And for those who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself, regenerate their hearts, give them hearts of flesh, replacing their hearts of stone, they might come to know you through repentance and faith. I pray that you would get me out of the way and continue to humble me in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his writings, and some may even be aware of what is known as his great trilemma, as it is stated in brief. Jesus is either liar lunatic or what? Lord. You've heard that, haven't you? It's called a trilemma because it's not a dilemma. It's a trilemma. There's three things. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. In Lewis's own words captured in his book, Mere Christianity, he states it in this way, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. I wonder if Lewis had in mind, at least in part, our passage today. We see at least three of the elements of what he has written in in the passage today. Sorry, what he has written in these pages presents here in our text. We see things like he is a good man, but we don't see people saying he is God. He is a liar, for he leads people what? Astray, it says in the text. Or, as the Jews say to him, he has a demon because of what he believes the Jews are seeking to do to him. 
whatever can be said about the rest of Lewis's writings, and I do take issue with some of his theology, this trilemma does make sense of the way in which people tended to view Jesus in the days he walked the earth and the sense in which some people take him today. Which leads us to the main idea of our passage this morning. You have this written for you on the back of your bulletin, or it's there for you in your bulletin that's been sent out to you via email if you're watching over live stream. There is no greater need than to know who Jesus is and believe in him. There is no greater need than to know who Jesus is and believe in him. And we, we, maybe if you've been through this series, you'll be like, Jason, it keeps coming down to that, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. This is the most important thing that anyone can know in their life. Who is Jesus? And to believe in him. And that is so, even that statement is so packed with theology. Who is Jesus? And, and what did he come to do? And we must believe in him. You know, some people say there is no creed but Christ. You know, no creed but the Bible. But understand, when you say that, you, you have to see that as the tip of the iceberg. And everything that underlies that underneath the surface is what you mean when you say, Christ, who is Jesus? Many people can say they believe in Jesus, but who has Jesus claimed to be and what did he come to do. I want us to see this morning three elements of the controversy concerning the identity of Jesus. Three elements of the controversy concerning the identity of Jesus. The first is this, whispers about Jesus' identity. Whispers about Jesus' identity in verses 10 through 13. Well, first uh, thing we see in this passage is that Jesus does indeed go up to the feast, but not in the way that his brothers had cajoled him to do so. So we kind of chatted a little bit last week about what seems like something contradictory between verse 8 and verse 10 here in John uh, chapter 7, but it is not a contradiction. Jesus says in verse 8, you go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. But then in verse 10 it says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. But notice this, not publicly, but privately. The reason that we cannot see verses, verses 8 and 10 as contradictory is because we're relying on Jesus' desire to obey the Father and not what his brothers are telling him to do. There's a difference. His brothers are telling him a particular way in which to go up to the feast. And he says, I'm not going. It is not yet my time. And we discussed a little bit last week, is that about his hour to die or is it more about his appointed time to go to the feast? in the way in which the Father has told him he is to go up to the feast. Um, and, and we kind of said that it's maybe more the second, that idea that it's the way in which he ought to go up to the feast and the way in which the Father is directing him, the Father being God, of course, God the Father, versus this idea of his hour of death. But it's along the way. He must go to the feast in the way that the Father has instructed him to go, not the way that his brothers have instructed him to go, because it is along the way to his death, to that final piece of obedience, if you will. Here's what Don Carson says in his commentary, uh, considering verses 8 and verse 10. Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he is planning to stay in Galilee forever, 
But that because his life is regulated by his heavenly father's appointments, he is not going to the feast when they say he should go. It's interesting to note that once Jesus arrives, we see the intent of the Jews is still to find him as we see in verse 11. So they very much expect to see him at this feast. Why would they have expected to see him at this feast? Jesus, again, is not saying that he's not going at all. He's just not going in the way that his brothers want him to go. But why would Jesus have shown up to this feast? Because Jesus is the perfect Jew. He would not have missed a feast. He would not have not gone at all to this feast. So the Jews know, which is very interesting when you think about it. It's very ironic. Jesus is going to be at this feast. Why? Because he's obedient. He's obedient to the laws of God to Israel. But he's going to go up on the terms of his heavenly father not on the terms of his brother or even the Jews. Look at what it says in verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And so we see this seeking out of Jesus. We've even kind of uh, talked about this in previous passages, this seeking out of Jesus. They are seeking him and they are seeking him for the very reason that Jesus brings up later, which is they want to kill him. They want to confront him, they want to call him a blasphemer, and they want to kill him. But there are other people talking about Jesus than just the Jews. There are are the Jews that are seeking him, but, but his name continues to come up in mutterings, in whisperings. But these questions are stemmed for fear of the Jews, as it says in verse 13. Look at verses 12 and 13. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one would speak openly of him. Jesus' life and ministry from the beginning have stirred controversy, especially with the religious leaders. Again, just a reminder, when you see the term the Jews in the Gospel of John, typically it's speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees. We now see there are those who are seeking to understand his identity. He is a good man, some say. He is leading people astray, others say. Yet overall, there's a fear of the Jews, and therefore they were whispering about him, not speaking openly. It is possible to think about this as those who are fearing the response of man, to think about what it may mean to publicly identify or speak of Jesus. We've already seen that in our study of John, that regardless of what men think of Jesus, and while he is certainly concerned about mankind's heart and what happens to them, he is only concerned ultimately about doing the Father's will. And when we think about these whisperings about Jesus, these, these questions as a, uh, to his identity, we can observe similar tropes, similar quotations in our day, of those who are not sure what to think about Jesus. There's the famous statement, as is said here in our text, he was a good man, a good teacher. And even as Lewis has said, this cannot capture all of who he is. If he is a good man, what does good mean? And to what extent is he good? If he is always good all the time and never sins at all, that says something about who he is. But This does not, in and of itself, do justice to the entirety of who Jesus is. I'm sure I've shared with you before the story from many, many years ago when I was on a plane 
uh, I think flying from Chicago perhaps to Florida in those days. But next to me on the plane were um, boyfriend and girlfriend uh, who were uh, attending Oberlin College. If you know anything about Oberlin College, it's one of the most liberal colleges in the United States. And this is back in the mid-1990s. And um, they were asking me, you know, what, what do you do? You know, so here I am, a Bible college student, you know, heading home for a break or whatever. And so I'm, I'm in Bible college. I'm, you know, studying to, be, to go into ministry and, and these kinds of things. And the, the boyfriend said to me, oh, wow. He said, yeah, I uh, did a class on the historical Jesus. And so we were kind of chatting about that a little bit. And, and I said, well, well, what do you think? You know, what do you think about Jesus? And he looks at me with a kind of a half smile and just goes, he was one heck of a guy, only he didn't say heck. And uh, you fill in the blank, you guys. Know. <laughs> I'm not going to say that, I'm on camera. Um, <laughs> but, but that was his determination after having studied uh, the historical Jesus. And if you're familiar with biblical studies at all, there's this whole category of study called historical Jesus. And uh, those who are conservative you know, do a good job of it. Those who are liberal do a bad job. So it's clear that he has had this liberal education on the historical Jesus, you know. And, you know, this was kind of his way of saying, you know, he was a pretty good guy. You know, he was a heck of a guy. Maybe somebody I'd like to, you know, sit down with and grab a beer with and have a conversation with. But it doesn't capture all of who Jesus is just to say that he is a good man or a heck of a guy. And the reality is, is when we are pressed with that question of who is Jesus, we too might find ourselves concerned about what man may think of us if we publicly proclaim to be followers of Jesus. So we may now issue the question this morning, to our hearing, and maybe perhaps to those who are here who have not trusted in Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not who is Jesus to you, or what has Jesus done for you, but who is Jesus? What does he say he is? What has he proclaimed about himself in the Gospel of John? Well, let's just keep our finger in John chapter 7, and and turn a few pages back to John chapter 3. We're not going to hit... Every single passage this morning. We're going to hit some some highlights this morning. John chapter 3. Look at verse 13. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who he calls the teacher of Israel. Look at what it says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is Jesus describing himself, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man who must be lifted up in order that those who look upon him might have eternal life. That's saying something more than he is just a good man. But it might indicate a way in which people in his day understood him to be leading people astray. Why? Because of who he claimed to be. 
Has he not proven himself out, though? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Look at John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And he is having this conversation with her, and she's beginning to discover more and more about who he is. She calls him a prophet. And then sort of this bit of revelation, if you will, comes upon her. In verses 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah, our word for Messiah is the word Christ. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, I am that one. I am he. I am the Messiah. Who does Jesus say he is? He says he is the son of man who must be lifted up. He says he is the Messiah. He uses that phrase, I am, ego me," which is the parallel language in the Greek New Testament for the Old Testament language of Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. Jesus purposefully uses those words to indicate that he is God. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 24 This relates very much to our passage today. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He had healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Notice this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing this man, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. So we've seen Him call Himself the Son of Man. We've seen Him call Himself the Christ, the Messiah. And now what is He calling Himself? The Son of who? Son of God. He's calling God His Father. And and the religious leaders are wanting to kill Him for this. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What else is Jesus saying? He has said he is um, the Son of Man who is lifted up, and if they look on him, they will have eternal life. He has said that he is the Messiah who is to come, the Anointed One. He says he is the Son of God who, uh, here he says... um, If they believe in me, they will have eternal life. And they will not come into judgment, but they will have life. This is vitally important. This question of who is Jesus really is the most important question. And as Jesus walks into Jerusalem secretly, people are whispering, where is he? People are whispering, He's a good man. Others saying, no, no, no. He leads the people astray. But who has he said he is? As previously, when there are stirrings about Jesus, it is not long until he proclaims who he is. 
and what he has come to do, as we see in our next point. Secondly, Jesus declares truth about his identity. Jesus declares truth about his identity in verses 14 through 18. Back over to John chapter 7. Jesus goes to the temple, the central place of worship, at likely the most popular feast. And there he begins to teach. Look at what it says. About the middle of the feast. So, so now their time has passed. He has not gone as his brothers had called him to do to publicly present himself. But about the middle of the feast, he does go into the temple and he begins to preach and to teach. He goes up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? It's likely that Jesus teaches from the Old Testament. That's the only scriptures they had at the time. Not just declaring without reason who he is, but declaring from their own scriptures that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We've seen him do this in other places in the Gospels, where he says things like, This has come to pass in your sight today. As for, um, I'm sorry, a reason for understanding it this way is the response from the Jews in verse 15. They marveled, it said. They therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Marveled here means extraordinarily impressed. Why? Because as far as they are concerned, Jesus is just a carpenter's son from. Nazareth, is this not the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Who is this? Who is he? How is it that he has come into this kind of learning? Why do they marvel? The level of his understanding as one who has never been through formal training. And what's interesting is this seems very much like a parallel of when he is younger that Luke describes to us in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. We're not going to turn there. Mark that down. Read it later. What happens there? Uh, Jesus departs from his parents. He's 12 years old. He's in the temple. They're looking for him. They can't find him. When they do find him, where is he? He's sitting in the temple with the religious leaders, asking and answering questions. Then what does it say? It says they are amazed at his answers at 12 years old. They're amazed at his ability to answer these questions. He has never been formally trained, but we understand that Jesus in his humanity had to grow in understanding. This is not true of divinity. God in his perfections cannot learn, but Jesus in his humanity must grow and learn. Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, the very section right before it it speaks of Jesus' interaction in the temple at 12 years old, says that he grows in understanding and in favor with God. Jesus in his humanity. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation, the uh, mystery of the hypostatic union, that uh, God of very God, the Son of God eternally, is united to human flesh, perfect human flesh, and that in that, he still grows in his humanity. Jesus' response to them is not that he has never learned, but that this is not his teaching, but it is the teaching that is from his Father, look at what it says. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Again, we are thinking of this in regard to Jesus' submission in the incarnation to the will of his Father. Jesus in his incarnation is always pointing to the will of his Father. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 45. It's very similar. Look at verse 44 first, forgive me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And he goes on to speak of those who believe in him having eternal life. Jesus is simply here reflecting the word of God. In his humanity, Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn. And as he learns more about the word of God, I think that he did not lose any of that. He retained it all. And so by the time he's in his earthly ministry, he is able to, well, even by the time he's 12, he's able to answer these questions. And by the time he's probably in his 30s, he's able to interact and show how much he actually does know of God's word and God's will. Jesus is simply reflecting God's word. In reality, it is his word. The word of God is a Trinitarian reality. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 speak of how God's word comes from divine inspiration. And then we think about what Jesus is known as in John chapter 1. What is he known as? He is known as the word. The word of God. And what does it say in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18? The word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as, as the only one from the side of the Father, as it says in 1 John. But it also says what? No one at any time has ever seen God. But Jesus narrates, literally in the original language, narrates God to us. He has made God known. John is saying this in retrospect, in John chapter 1. But it is what is happening live as Jesus teaches in the temple in our passage. I'm not speaking on my own authority, he said. He's speaking on the authority of the Father. He is not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father who will in turn glorify him. Write this down, we're running out of time. John chapter 5, verses 30 through 43, to see that Jesus has already said this. He is not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father who will in turn glorify him. Jesus goes on to speak of those who are speaking from their own authority. Those who speak from their own authority are seeking their own glory and not God's. Look at verse 18. And those who speak on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What is Jesus claiming here? That he does not lie. That he is perfect in all that he says. It says, George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie. Jesus literally cannot lie. This is a veiled criticism of the religious leaders. What are they doing? They're seeking their own glory. But those who are seeking the Father's glory are 
Um, not false, as those who seek their own glory. Jesus is peeling back the layers here, revealing the intentions of those who oppose him. And he is about to expose their motives in the next few verses. But let's pause for a moment and apply these verses. First of all, Jesus is always concerned about the heart. The heart, the inside of person uh, of a person is eventually exposed on the outside. What one's motives are in studying the scriptures and proclaiming the gospel will eventually come to light. We then must consider our motives. As those who are in Christ, we certainly have been transformed by the gospel, but we still struggle with the sin of pride and self-righteousness and self-glorification. Do we really care about the glory of God and the good of our neighbor? True gospel ministry motivated by God's glory and care of our neighbor, especially that they would come to saving faith and for those in Christ that they would walk faithfully with him. This will reflect in our consistent care about the things that God cares about, his own glory and love for neighbor. This is not the motivation for the religious leaders. They are motivated by power and prestige. And we see this escalate more and more in the Gospel of John. But Jesus calls them out on this, as we see in our final point. And we're very much short on time. I apologize for that. But look at verses 19 through 24. Jesus declares truth about those who seek to kill him in verses 19 through 24. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus challenges them first about what they have been given concerning the Scriptures. This is their motivation, not to obey the law of God as those who have been transformed by God through His Spirit, but rather the self-glorifying reality of wanting to kill Him. As we saw, He told them they searched the Scriptures, but they failed to see Him. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Their response is expected. Verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They do not receive what he has said, but they accuse him of being demon-possessed. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus then takes them back to the instance in John where the plot begins. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did, not, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man... A man's whole body well? This is the whole issue, right? This is what it goes back to, is that he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were trying to say he did work on the Sabbath. And because of that and the fact that he was making himself equal with God, as we read earlier, they want to kill him. You are willing to do the external work, the self-glorifying work of the Sabbath, circumcision, But the heart is what God cares about, not external conformity. In fact, God says, even in the Old Testament, physical circumcision is not the most important thing that I'm concerned about. So I'm concerned about a contrite heart, a humble heart, one who would bow themselves before me and submit. What is circumcision? It's an outward act of obedience and submission to God as a mark and sign of one who is in the covenant. But God said, I'm more concerned about the circumcision of your heart than I am about the external. And Jesus takes that and says, I have shown you the power of God in making a man whole on the Sabbath. And for this you seek to kill me. What's the drive? What's the motivation? You think I have broken God's law and you want to kill me. I have made a man whole and honored God and glorified God by doing so. And because of that you seek to kill me? 
Do not judge by appearances, he says, the external, but judge with a right judgment, internal, love for God and for neighbor. That's what he's accusing them of. You are so concerned about the external, you miss the point. I have done something that has made a man whole. He was lame for 38 years of his life, and now he's able to live a vibrant and full life. And I pointed to him, and I said to him, go and sin no more. What's the point? Repent and believe the gospel. That is what this is about. And you Pharisees are so concerned about the external that you now want to kill me. And and dear ones, we must measure ourselves in this way too. We are quick to judge by the external, aren't we? They don't look like a Christian. They don't look like me. If they were really a Christian, they wouldn't do this or that. If they were really a Christian, they wouldn't go to that kind of a place. This is why we need the church and need each other to sharpen each other and disciple each other. We are not to look at the outward appearance as Israel did with Saul, but to look at the inward heart as God did with David. How quick are we judging based on the wrong things? How quick are we to judge ourselves rightly in a self-righteous way? Now listen, I'm not saying we don't call people out on their sin. That's what Jesus is doing here. But how quickly do we judge ourselves rightly and deal with the sin in our own hearts? If you're in Christ, your life is governed by the Scriptures. And I pray that you are in those Scriptures and not just reading but seeking to, in the power of the Spirit, obey them and seeking to look to Jesus as the one who has saved you and by the power of the Spirit and love of God walk with Him. And then as you minister to one another that you are pointing those who you are discipling to Christ, to the Scriptures, to the way in which Jesus walked. Not for the external but the internal. The way in which we're to live in accord with God. Loving Him, obeying Him, loving and serving others. And finally, if you are not in Christ, my question to you this morning is, who is this Jesus? If he is who he says he is, and he is, you need to turn from your sin and trust in him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, there were so many other things I I wanted to say this morning, but clearly they were not the things that you wanted me to say in this hour. So I pray that the things that have been said have been from your word and have, Lord, not bound our conscience to do something that you have not called us to do, but freed us to do what you have done because Christ has perfectly lived in our stead and died in our place and has been raised again. Lord, help us to find joy and delight and obedience to you because you are the joy giver, not the joy killer. And let us point others to Jesus is the pioneer of our faith who has carved out this path already that we might walk in it for the joy that is set before us as the joy that was set before him. May we call each other to that. May we not judge by external but get to the heart, even our own heart, Lord. And I pray for the one who needs to hear this morning that Jesus is the only way, that he is who he says he is, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone to be made right with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.